The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Amen. Why don't you take your uh, Bibles and open with me to the book of Genesis, one of the one of the journeys that you get to take along with me as your, your pastor is that you get to hear about what I'm excited about. So uh, I'm excited about Genesis. I'm also excited about Daniel. We'll get back to that too. But as I've been preparing for this class, uh, just excited about uh, the book of, of Genesis. Uh, we've started this uh, Through the Bible in Three Years uh, Sunday School uh, class. Uh, we're calling it Journey Through Scripture. Uh, my mentor uh, and uh, pastor, Tom Leek, had a similar class where uh, he surveyed the major passages in Scripture in a shorter time frame, and uh, we'll use some of his material along the way. But uh, in our class, we're going to be taking a scenic route through the Scriptures, uh, three years to get through it all. And I know that seems like a long time uh, to, uh, to be in the same class, uh, but you can be thankful for a three-year survey. Uh, the, the guys who are taking our Shepherd's Institute class are doing a jet tour of the entire Old Testament in 12 weeks. So uh, may God have mercy on their souls and uh, on their families as well. The, the pace that we're taking is a blessing. So uh, three years for the entire Bible is a blessing. And uh, this week we examined the first six chapters of Genesis. And in just the first six chapters of Genesis, we've gone from creation to chaos, from paradise to pollution, from delight to death. We've gone from Genesis 1 verse 31 where God saw all that he had made, and he says, behold, it was very good. We go from that to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, where the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And let the record show that it didn't take long for mankind to find the bottom, to sink to the bottom. The firstborn son, one generation out of paradise, the first child born to human parents was a murderer. And all of this takes place just east of Eden. Just outside the gates of paradise is a crime scene. And the police tape is pulled across the field and a chalk line is drawn around the body. And it proves that when mankind fell, he fell hard and he fell far. And think about what happened in the fall of mankind. Remember back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, in verse 17, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, In the day that you eat, you will surely what? You'll surely die. And sometimes people wonder, you know, why, why didn't Adam die immediately after he ate the fruit? You know, he lived to be 930 years old. In uh, Genesis 5 and verse 5, it speaks about that. I mean, that doesn't seem like the day that you eat of the fruit that you'll surely die. But the answer is, is that Adam did die. Immediately he died, spiritually. He immediately experienced a separation between him and his creator. He was alienated from God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 says we are excluded or alienated from the life of God. He was cut off from the life of God. This was true of Adam. The presence of God in the garden was no longer a welcome visit. 
time with God wasn't a walk in the park anymore. There were no more midday strolls in the cool of the day. Now God became Adam's greatest threat. Adam hid himself from the presence of God. One of the saddest passages in Scripture is that when God came, Adam hid. And it was proof that Adam's soul shriveled up and died that day. Sin alienated man and sin assassinated man. Adam was now what Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, dead in his trespasses and sins. Or what Ephesians 2, 5 says, dead in his transgressions. And now sin permeates every aspect of our existence. Man is not inherently good. Mankind is inherently evil. That's what theologians call original sin. Or how Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 4 describes the nation of, of Judah, where Isaiah says, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. We're like what David describes in Psalm 14 and verse 1 where he says, They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand. He does a search. Who are those who seek after God? They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. God is good and does good, and sin is evil and does evil. Ralph uh, Venning, a Puritan, wrote in this book, The Sinfulness of Sin, and I'll quote several times from him today because the book is so good, but he says, The works of sin are deformed and monstrously ugly, for it works disorder, confusion, and everything that is abominable. Sin may be arraigned for all the mischiefs and villainies that have been done in the world. It is the master of misrule, the author of sedition, the builder of Babel, the troubler of Israel and of all mankind. It's a soul killer. Adam's soul died spiritually when he ate from the tree. But not only did Adam die immediately in a spiritual sense, eventually and over time he also died physically. The sense of the Hebrew clause, you surely will die, you will surely die in Genesis 2.17, could also be translated, dying you shall die. In other words, you will immediately begin the process of death. And that was literally fulfilled. Adam's genealogy in Genesis 5 follows this consistent pattern. He lived, he had children, he died. He lived, he begat, he died. Why does the genealogy in Genesis 5 include the words, and he died? I mean, isn't that obvious? Not before Genesis 3, it wasn't. Genesis 5 includes the words, and he died, and he died, and he died, to show that the malicious virus had entered into the human race. And now it's just part of the code. Every deformity, disability, disease, disaster, death can all be traced back to sin. We live, we reproduce, we die. And death demonstrates that God doesn't issue idle threats. He means business. He's not like the the parent who says, you know, now don't make me count to 10. I'm, I'm warning you, I'm serious this time. Eight, nine, nine and a half, nine and three. Don't make me come up there. Nine and three quarters. I mean, that's, that's not God. God doesn't issue idle threats. God says what he means. He means what he says. And when God says, dying you shall die, that was a certainty. And heading the list of Genesis chapter 5 is Adam, the father of humanity. Genesis 5, 5, all the days that Adam lived were 900 in 30 years, and he died. That's the fulfillment of the punishment of Genesis 3:19. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread 
till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And this earth has been collecting dust since Genesis chapter 3. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Abraham says in Genesis 18, 27, Who am I but dust and ashes? We're an entire race of sand men. And the clock is ticking. Hebrews 9, 27 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. But not only did Adam die immediately in a spiritual sense, and eventually in a physical sense, he would also die eternally in a final sense. If he did not repent and place his faith in the promises of God, he would die eternally. Because after the fall, he was by nature a child of wrath, even as the rest. That's Ephesians 2.3. We're all children of wrath. We're destined for wrath by nature. And the Bible describes this wrath as a death beyond death. Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It's what the book of Revelation 20 and verse 14 calls the second death. Second death, where death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And Adam received an eternal death sentence on the day that he sinned, and he took his place on death row. And that's where all of us are until we repent of our sins and turn to Christ. We're all on death row. Until we come to Christ, we are ruined. Adam had to look forward to the promise of Christ And we look backward to the promise of Christ. So before we get into this message, this is just a plea that if you're here and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation, you are ruined. There's no hope outside of Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. It's by him that we're saved. Turn to Jesus Christ and find life. That is the only place where you'll find life. There's a song that we sometimes sing, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. There is no way that you can make yourself better. If you wait until you're better, you know, sometimes I talk to people and they say, hey, I'm just trying to get my life straightened out first. You'll never come. (laughs) You know, I'm just waiting until I get it together. You'll never get it together. If you could get it together on your own, there wouldn't be a need for Christ. Christ has come because you're ruined. Do you understand that? That is the hope that we have. It's Jesus Christ, looking to the promise of Jesus Christ. He came, he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He died on the cross as a substitute for all who believe in him. And if you turn your eyes upon Jesus, turn to Jesus Christ, trust in him alone for your salvation, Turn from your sins and look to him alone. The Bible says that you will have life. And our ruin all started with Adam. He was created rich and healthy, innocent and pure, and he became poor and needy, sick and poor. Sadly, the rotten apple didn't fall far from the tree. Adam's depravity showed up in his offspring. Adam became so degenerate from the fall that he could only produce a corrupted seed. For as in Adam, the Bible says, all die. And the first son of Adam also became the first son of Satan. 
Let's take a look at our text, Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 1. It says, Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you today, as we always do, Lord, trusting in you to give us understanding as we look into your word. Help us to understand these things, to apply these things, that we'd be changed by these things, that we'd have a proper understanding about the world around us and the desperate condition that we live in, Lord, and the only hope that we have in the Savior. Father, remind us of these truths. And Father, I pray that you'd use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I've titled this message, It Runs in the Family. It Runs in the Family. Before we jump into the explanation of uh, chapter 4, it's important that we pick up a chapter earlier to set the context for us. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, after mankind fell to temptation, God declared war on Satan. And this is the one who led mankind into sin. The snake in Genesis chapter 3 was more than simply a snake. He was a tool of Satan who was used to deceive the world. John 8, chapter 44, uh, Jesus calls Satan a liar and the father of lies, the original liar. And Revelation 12 and 9 calls Satan the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Satan is the first liar, the original liar, the father of lies, and he is identified with the snake. And Revelation 20, verse 2 calls him the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. It's Satan who used this snake, and in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15, God declares war on Satan and his offspring. And this sets up chapter 4. We have this, this battle that God speaks about. At the beginning of chapter uh, 3 and verse uh, 15, it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, that was uh, Eve who would now turn against the serpent. She listened to the serpent before. Now she would turn against the serpent. There would be a, a violent opposition to the serpent now. Number two, there would be an opposition between the sons of Satan and the sons of the faith. In uh, verse 15 again, it says, There would be enmity between your seed, the sons of Satan, and her seed, those who followed the faith of Eve. So the passage predicts that there would be an ongoing battle between the sons of Satan and the sons of faith. And unbelievers are considered the sons of the serpent, the evil one. And believers are considered the sons of the woman, the woman of faith. Jesus told the religious leaders in his day that you are of your father who? The devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. In Matthew 23 and verse 33, Jesus said, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? So there's a war between the two seeds. There's no neutral ground. You're either a son of faith or a son of the serpent. And then there's a third declaration of war between the singular seed and Satan himself. At the end of verse 
15, God declares that there would be an opposition between Satan and this one singular, solitary, but victorious seed. And this would come in the future. He shall bruise you on the head. This seed, singular, will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. There's a a promise of a seed to come who would crush death to death and give the serpent the mortal blow. And that's the background that you need to keep in mind as you make your way into Genesis chapter 4 because the search is on for the seed. Who is the seed going to be? Who's going to crush death to death and bring a mortal blow to the enemy? Chapter 4 opens up with a reasonable expectation from Eve that she might have had that seed. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now again, you need to put yourself back in Eve's tunic, okay? All that you know about the plan of redemption at this time is that there's going to come an offspring of a woman who will crush the head of the serpent, and now I've just had an offspring. So what do you think Eve was thinking? This could be it. Cain could be the one. And she rejoiced in this fruit of her womb. When she says, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord, it's an acknowledgement that the Lord was involved in this delivery. The the literal Hebrew is, uh, I've gotten a man, the Lord. It's this acknowledgement that the Lord is present, the Lord is with me, the Lord is helping. And some even speculate that she might have thought that maybe this is the Lord himself, the promised deliverer. But at the very least, Cain would have been seen as the fulfillment of God's words back in Genesis chapter 3, that ye shall bring forth children. You know, the extended quotation from Genesis 3 is, in pain, you will bring forth children. I mean, think about that. No Lamaze classes, no pain relievers, no physicians to cut the cord. It was just even the Lord. I mean, Adam's no help here. That's, and her birth announcement is, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord because nobody else is here to help me, right? The Lord is all I've got, and I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord, and she names him Cain. Cain, the the gotten one. I've got him. And Cain would have been for Eve the first hope of redemption. He's the firstborn. He's the beginning of human reproduction. He's the first sign for Adam and Eve that God is not done with the human race. Could this be the one? But by the time Eve has Abel, it seems like that hope has died because she names Abel. And the name Abel is connected to the word for vanity, emptiness, uselessness. Remember the, the book of Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Uh, It's connected to this Hebrew word for Abel, Abel Hebelim, the the greatest of vanities. Eve here is much like Naomi in the book of Ruth. You know, I went out full and I'm coming back empty. And it seems hopeless at this point. This is not it. And rather than these boys delivering her from her toil, they enter into the toil. Genesis 3.19 says, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. And both of these boys entered into the sweatshop. Abel was a keeper of the flocks. Cain was a tiller of the ground. And what seemed to be a reasonable expectation of deliverance seems to have died. But God doesn't work on our timetable, does he? Galatians 4 verse 4 says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. God doesn't work on our timetable. The hope for humanity was not over. It was just beginning. 
And next we move from the reasonable expectation to the rejected religion of Cain. Look at verses 3 to 5. It says, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this, but, but Cain was a religious man. He was so religious that he brought his offerings to the Lord. And even so religious that he desired that the Lord would approve of the offerings that he brought. And at this point, there's no explicit command that we know of to bring offerings to the Lord. The Levitical priesthood isn't established until the book of Exodus, which is at this point thousands of years in the future. Not not millions, thousands of years in the future. But even before the law of Moses provided a system and a structure for bringing these offerings to the Lord, it was already a common practice from the beginning of the human race to acknowledge the God who made the heavens and the earth with an offering. For example, Noah, after he exited the ark on dry ground in Genesis chapter 8, he gives an offering to the Lord. Abraham, before the, the practice of the law of Moses, had a practice of making offerings to the Lord. You also have uh, Job and Job 1, and actually you can flip over there real quick, Job, Job 1, and many don't realize that Job was written during the period of the patriarchs. So Job is written uh, before uh, the books of Moses were written. But in Job chapter 1, you have Job who also has a, a practice. Look at Job chapter 1 and uh, verse, start at verse 4. Job chapter 1 verse 4. It says, His sons used to go and hold the feast in the house of each one on his day, you know, probably the birthday. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So this is even before the law of Moses, that there was this, this practice, a common practice of offering sacrifices to the Lord. And in each of these cases, the offering was an animal. Noah took of every clean animal, every clean bird. Abraham provided, was a, provided a, a ram in Genesis 22. Job provided a burnt offering in, in Job 1. And even Moses, before he came to Sinai and received the law, he had the same practice. He told Pharaoh, you know, uh, we're, we're all leaving from Exodus. Uh, and not only are we leaving, but all of our animals are leaving out of Egypt, right? We're, we're all leaving. Why? We're not leaving our flocks behind because we need them to offer sacrifice. This is before we got the law. He says, I need these animals to make sacrifice to the Lord. He says in verse 26 of chapter 10, Therefore our livestock too shall go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind. No, no hoof left behind, right? So even though we don't find an explicit command to offer animal sacrifices, it was the expectation because it was understood that that is what's needed to cover man's Sin. Job explicitly offers a blood sacrifice. Noah offers a blood sacrifice. And I believe that when Abel gives his offering, that that's what he's doing. He's offering a sacrifice for sin. And where would he get that from? That somehow a sacrifice was necessary for sin. Glad you asked that question. Flip back to Genesis chapter 3. We've covered this already. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. 
That's not a throwaway verse, okay? There's meaning there. There's significance there. Where, where do you think he, he got this skin from? He didn't order this from Amazon. It's not a, a mail-in order here. He's not making a fashion statement with the skin. What, what he's, he's communicating here is that your sin is so wretched that it requires a death. And an animal is going to be sacrificed, and the skin of that animal is going to be torn off. And I'll make a cloak from that for you. And what would that be for Adam and Eve? It was a constant reminder that I should have died. But there was an animal who took my place. There was a substitute that was given. The animal would be a visible symbol of man's death penalty. Cain heard that. He knew that sin deserved death. He knew that we were a race doomed to die. Cain had access to the truth. But Cain came before God on his own terms. I'm a tiller of the ground, and, and that's what I'm going to bring. And I'm not going to trade you know, any of these for even one of Abel's sheep. God's going to take what I give him. And some commentators point out that grain offerings were acceptable to God, and that is true, but not for sin. <laughs> not for sin. Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22 says, And according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no what? No remission of sins, no forgiveness. But that didn't stop Cain from offering his own religious substitute. You know, God said that this is the substitute, and he says, I'll provide my own substitute. But he's still religious. He still showed up for the worship service. He still brought a sacrifice of praise. You know, we bring the sacrifice of praise. I'm bringing it. I'm going to bring my sacrifice of, of praise. But he just refused to take his sin seriously. To seek God's forgiveness, he ignored the provision of God. And what Cain really is, is he's the founder of all false religion. He's the founder of uh, Fig Leaf Community Church. It's not that Cain rejects the true God. He knows that there's a true God who exists. He's so convinced that he even brings this offering to worship the true God. He attempts to come to God, but he attempts to come before God in his own way. No true faith, no true repentance. And without faith, it's what? Impossible to please God. No faith, no repentance. And he's the prototype of all false religion. Flip over to the book of Jude. Book of Jude, right before uh, the book of Revelation. Flip to the end of your Bible and don't ask me what chapter of Jude... Look at Jude 3. And you remember the story of Jude. He's a, he writes this epistle to contend for the truth. Verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you would contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. I'm writing that you would contend for the truth. I wanted to just write a, you know, just a common letter about our salvation, but I, we've got to attack the, 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 the lies out here. There are false teachers out here. We need to contend for the truth. And look at how he describes these false teachers down in verse 10. He says, But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Look at verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of who? They've gone the way of Cain. False teachers go the way of Cain. 
Cain is the prototype for all false religion. That's who Cain is. Cain is associated with Balaam. He's associated with Korah. At the end of the verse, it says, in pay. And for pay, they've rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And who was the first one who joined that black darkness forever? It was Cain. Cain is the prototype of all false religion. Trying to acknowledge God, but I'll do it in my own way. I've got my own way to come before God. And God rejected both the person of Cain and the sacrifice of Cain. Who he was was wrong and what he brought was wrong. Genesis 4, 5 says he had no regard for Cain and for his offering. 1 John 3, verse 12 says his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The rejected religion of Cain. But that's not where it stops because God also comes to Cain. There's there's mercy for Cain. It's amazing, the mercy of God. Back in chapter 4 of Genesis Look at the end of verse 5. This is the righteous counsel that was going to be given to Cain after his sin. It says in the second half of verse 5, So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you, why are you angry? The, the, the word that's used for uh, the anger of Cain, he became very angry. Uh, in the Hebrew it says, And it burned for Cain. It's a word that means to be hot to be furious, to be kindled. I mean, a burning rage. Cain was hot. And think about who Cain is really angry at. Who is Cain really upset with here? It's not Abel. (laughs) Abel has no part in rejecting Cain's sacrifice. His real problem was not with Abel. His real problem was with God. That's who's the problem. God, you are the one who's rejected my sacrifice. You are the one who looked upon Abel's sacrifice. God, I'm upset with you. I am hot with God. I'm furious. But since he can't get to God, he settles things with Abel. Romans 8 verse 7 says, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Men are hostile with God. They're upset with God. Colossians 1 21 Describes the unconverted as alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Ralph Vanning again says, Sin is so malicious that it will not only displease and dishonor God, but labors to defeat and frustrate the endeavors of all who attempt to honor God. So, so not only am I upset with God, I'm upset with everybody who seeks to honor God. If sin's desires might take place, There should not be a person or thing by whom and by which God should be pleased or glorified. I don't want God to be glorified. I don't want God to be pleased. I'm against him and I'm against anybody who seeks to please and glorify him. Continues to say that out of spite and envy, it will do its worst and hate them because God loves them. God's children are his darlings, his favorites, as dear to him as the apple of his eye. In all their affliction, he bears a part and is afflicted and looks upon it as if he himself were treated as they are in this world. Now, the nearer and dearer they are to God, and the more God's heart is set upon them for good, the more sin sets its heart against them for evil. Sin is always warring against the seed of God. 
God right here had every reason to wipe Cain off the map. Who, who do you think you are to be angry with me? If, if anybody should be angry here, it's me. <laughs> it's not you. you. You don't have any right to be angry. But instead of dealing with Cain with swift justice, he has a Q&A session with him. Hey, hey Cain, let me, let me ask you a question. Why, what are you angry about? Why are you angry? And God teaches us how to deal with people here. He's the perfect counselor, isn't he? Psalm 33, 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Proverbs 21, 30 says, There is uh, no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. He's the perfect counselor. We have a great paradigm here for counseling. First of all, the sin is questioned. Why, why are you angry? <laughs> and God never asks a question because he needs information. He's asking a question to get Cain to think. Do you have a good reason to be angry? The one who's justified in his anger would have been God, not Cain. The next time you're angry, why don't you ask yourself that question? What? Why am I angry? Do I really have a, a justifiable reason to be angry? What does God owe me? Am I, am I being treated better than I deserve or worse than I deserve? Jonah 4.9, God asked no, uh, Jonah the question, Jonah 4.9, do you have good reason to be angry? What, what are you angry about? Have you ever stopped long enough to ask yourself, am I, am I really justified for this? Here's sin is question. Next, the hope is offered. Chapter 4, verse 7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Hey, 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 Cain, I want to let you know that there's a door here. There's an exit. You, you can get off here if you want. I mean, you don't have to stay on this highway. The exit is coming up on your right. You know, it's like the, the divine Siri, right? You know, divine GPS. Here, get off on the next exit, Cain. You don't have to continue down this road. And you can do the right thing. It, it all starts with repentance. Turn from your sins. Do what's right. Abel's sacrifice was accepted because he believed in God, right? By faith, Hebrews 11.4 says, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice. Cain, you can do that too. You can believe and trust in me right now. You can turn to me. You can turn from your sins. You can do what's right. You can acknowledge your sin before me. There was a way out for Cain. His sin was questioned. Hope was offered. And finally, the warning was given. And isn't this a great paradigm for counseling? Question the sin, offer the hope, and warn the sinner. That, that's that's the, the pattern here, right? Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And here's the warning. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and it's desirous for you, but you must master it. He describes sin like a beast. Sin is, sin is a ferocious animal growling outside of your residence. There's no friendly creature that you're dealing with, with here. Sin, sin is ferocious. I like how one commentator put it. This crouching beast thirsts for your blood. That's what sin is. You, you don't play around with sin. So, so many of us, we, we, we play around with temptation as if, like, I can handle this. I can go out there and wrestle with the tiger for a little bit. It's not going to harm me. Who do you think you are? Out there playing around in the, in the, in the zoo with the lions as if, you know, you got them under control. They are wild. They are wild animals. That's what sin is. It's a wild, ferocious beast. You can't play around with sin. You can't play around with your temptation and somehow think that you're going to tame it. You cannot change the nature of sin. 
You can't change the nature of it. It is a ferocious animal, and it's thirsty for your blood. Look at it for what it is, and it waits here unnoticed. It's crouching. Why why does an animal crouch? Because it doesn't want you to see it, right? It's going to crouch down behind the bushes, in the grass, and get low, get low, right? Because it doesn't want to see want you to see when it's going to pounce on you. It's, it's ready to spring. It's waiting unnoticed. Sin will wait for the right moment to strike. You, know, you can play around if you want to. It's like, I, I mean, I kind of watched that last week and it didn't do anything. You know, maybe I can watch it again this week. You know, I kind of walked past that place last week that you knows leading me into sin and temptation, and but I think I can, I can handle it. You know, I, I know that, uh, that sin took me down in the past, you know, that it led me down this, this road of uh, addiction and waste, but, but I, th- I think I can handle it now. I think I've grown to the point where I can handle it. Sin waits patiently, waiting for you to get just within distance, kind of like the cobra coiled up, and he only strikes when he knows that he can reach you. That's how the, the snake works. He coils up and he waits until you get within distance. And strikes with accuracy. That's sin. It's waiting to pounce. And it's near. (laughs) You don't have to go far. It's right out your door. Sin is near. It's at the door, Cain. It's waiting for you. And it wants control. Sin doesn't play fair. It seeks to control. Cain said, and God told Cain, you've got to master it. You've got to get control of this thing. And the only way that you can do that is that you need to run to me. You need to cry out to God, cry out for repentance. And as perfect as God's counsel was, it was still rejected. This should give us a little encouragement when we give advice and people reject our advice. You know, sometimes we wonder in our minds, it's like, did I say the right thing? Maybe I could have approached it like this. You know, if I would have said that, maybe this scripture would have done it. You know, somehow we're, we're thinking that, like, something, you know, was, it, was it what I said? Here you have the perfect counselor from the mouth of God himself who's speaking to Cain. Some people are so determined that not even God speaking them, to them directly would turn them away from their course. And, beloved, this is what runs in the family. Cain's sin runs in the family. Do you have a tendency not to listen to people when they warn you? Do you have a tendency not to take sin seriously? Is that your tendency? So he goes from this counseling with the Lord to the ruthless murder of his brother. Look at verse 8. Cain told his brother. What did he tell him? (laughs) I don't know what the conversation looked like. Maybe he said, you know what, I just, you know, I was struggling with this thing and I was talking to the Lord and, you know, God spoke to me. Abel, can can I tell you what the Lord told me? Why don't we go for a walk? And I I want, to, I want to tell you this conversation I just had with the Lord. I mean, who knows how he did this? But this is premeditated. Cain speaks to Abel, his brother. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother. Now, didn't we already know that he was his brother? Why does it mention twice in verse 8, his brother, his brother? Why, why is it doing this? It's to heighten, it's to heighten the, the, this and emphasize how heinous this crime is. This is a crime between brothers. This is somebody who bears the family resemblance. This is somebody I grew up with, sat at the family table with. 
It's his brother that he rises up against. Hatred is thicker than blood. And this is all in the family. It's all in the family. We're not sure what Cain told his brother, Abel, but this is part of his plan to carry out this hatred. Rose up against Abel, his brother killed him. But if all we see is a brother killing a brother in rage, we've lost the background that I told you about when we started. Back in Genesis 3.15, remember there was a much greater conflict than just men between men. There's something else kind of behind the scenes that's also going on. There's this, this conflict between Satan and God and the children of faith and the children of the, the evil one. So, so, so there's this opposition between the sons of Satan and the sons of faith. And the murder of Abel was just the first battle between the sons of righteousness and the sons of Satan. That's what this was. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Abel was a son of righteousness. He was a child of faith. That's the testimony that he was given in Scripture. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. He was, he was a son of righteousness and a child of faith. But what does Scripture say about Cain? Flip over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Look at what it says about, about Cain. Who was Cain? 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. Cain was of the evil one. He was of the evil one. Look at verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one. What does it mean, of the evil one? He was one of the evil one's offspring. Satan was his father. He was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then verse 13, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. What is he saying there? Brothers, you're part of that same ongoing battle. There are sons of righteousness, sons of faith, and there are sons of Satan and sons of the wicked one. And there's going to be this ongoing battle between the sons of righteousness and the sons of Satan. When you stand up for the truth in the world, are you surprised and shocked when you're attacked? It's like, what are you attacking me for? I was just, I was just trying to tell you the truth. Why would you say that about me? I was only trying to help you out. I'm so shocked that this is going on. In my, I'm, are you kidding me? <laughs> this has been going on since Genesis chapter 4. There's this opposition between the sons of righteousness and the sons of, of Satan. When you stand up for the truth and you get attacked, that's what's supposed to happen because that's the way that the world works. That's the way that the world works. It's a product of the fall, and this will continue until the Lord returns. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, speaking about Satan, says, So the dragon was enraged with the woman, went off to make war with the rest of her children, who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan makes war against the saints. And it was Satan who was behind the first murder. Back in uh, John chapter 8, verse 44, why don't you flip to John real quick. John chapter 8 and verse 44. You have Jesus here speaking to the Pharisees and look at what he, look at what he says, John 8, 44. I already mentioned this earlier, but I want to finish the, the, the quote here. Look at what he says. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. What, what are the desires of your father? 
He was a murderer from the beginning. What murder was at the beginning? It was the murder of Abel by Cain. And guess who was behind it? Satan. The the first murderer. The first liar. The father of lies. He was a murderer from the beginning. And that murder that took place was, was ignited, was motivated, was empowered by Satan himself. And Abel stands in the the long line of martyrs for the faith. Listen to how Jesus describes the the scribes and Pharisees. Flip over to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. Isn't it amazing how the Bible all fits together? Just love this. Look at Matthew chapter 23. Look at verse uh, 33. Matthew 23, starting at verse 33. Listen to what Jesus says here. He says, you serpents. I've, I've heard that before. Why would he call them serpents? What do you think Jesus is drawing on here? You serpents, you brood of vipers, using the language of Genesis 3. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of who? Righteous Abel the first martyr to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. His story is found in 2 Chronicles 24 and 21. He's the last. Uh, 2 Chronicles was the last in the order of the Hebrew books uh, of the Bible. And basically, Jesus is saying from A to Z, you know, Abel to Zechariah, from the front to the back, upon you, this guilt is going to fall. Because they were seeking to do the will of the father, the will of their father, and trying to murder who? They're trying to murder Jesus Christ. (laughs) So this is what's been going on from the beginning. Jesus is talking about this ongoing battle between the sons of Satan and the sons of faith. And unbelievers are considered the sons of the serpent. And this war is going on between the two seeds and there is no neutral ground. You're on one side or the other. But don't forget that there was another conflict that God mentioned in Genesis 3. And it was the conflict between Satan and that one singular solitary seed. Remember that? There were the sons of the serpent and the sons of the woman. And then he's talked about the one that he, singular, he will crush you on the the head and you shall crush him on the hill. There's also the one, there's the many, there's the battle going on between the many. But then there's also this battle that's going to happen between the one, mano y mano, between Satan and that singular seed who is promised to come. Don't forget that that's also in the background here. So the seed was promised who would crush death to death and give Satan the mortal blow. And then Eve has a son. And what do you think Satan is thinking? Could this be the one? (laughs) Is this going to be the head crusher? I need to do whatever I got to do to take him out. Cain, I've already got him. He's one of mine. But this Abel guy, his, his sacrifice was actually accepted by the Lord. This is one who's righteous. This could be the one. This could be that that head crusher. I need to take him out. It was clear that Cain wasn't the seed, and he goes after Abel. Why do you think that Satan was so intent on murdering Abel? Because just like Eve was looking for the snake crusher, Satan was too. Who was going to be the head crusher? He's got faith. He's got righteousness. Abel might be the one. I need to take him out. So Abel becomes the target. 
because it was Satan's plot to take out the deliverer. Exodus chapter 1. What do you think was going on in Exodus chapter 1? Over in Exodus chapter 1, you have the king of Egypt. He spoke to the Hebrew midwives. One of them was named Shifra. The other was named Pua. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then he shall live. What do you think Satan was up to then in Exodus chapter 1? I'm trying to take out the deliverer. <laughs> uh, if it's a son, put him to death. If it's a daughter, we'll let her live. But if it's a son, put her to death. Put, put him to death. What do you think was going on? Satan is trying to get rid of the deliverer. Moses was the great deliverer, wasn't he? Maybe, maybe, is, is this the one? <laughs> I, need to take, I need to take the deliverer out. What do you think was going on in Matthew chapter 2? Matthew chapter 2. Verse 16, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under. This was a massive slaughter. What do you think was behind this slaughter? What do you think Satan was trying to do? I'm going to cast out this broad net because I'm hoping to catch the deliverer. Who is the deliverer? I need to get the seed. He's coming for my head. I know I'm the target. So he cast out this broad net. Just kill them all. Just wipe them all out and I'll somehow I might sweep them up too. We're going to kill them all. It was an attempt to get rid of the deliverer. And in Genesis 4, there was an attempt to get rid of a potential deliverer. Ralph Venning in his book says, So contrary is sin to the works of God that it sought and still seeks to undo all that God does. There might be no, that there might be no more seed, no name, no root left him on the earth. So sin and its works are contrary to God and his works. This is the battle. The battle was raging. And Satan is looking for where is this head crusher going to come from? I need to get him. I need to kill him. We need to wipe him out. Who is the deliverer? Spreading the, the net broad. Just kill all the children, all, all the males who are born. Just get rid of them all. Anybody two years old and, and younger, just get rid of them all. He's trying to catch the deliverer. But there was no way to stamp out this victorious seed. No way to stamp them out. The promises of God would be fulfilled. The deliverer would come. The deliverer would crush. And there was nothing that Satan could do to stop it. And we move from the reasonable expectation, the rejected religion of Cain, the righteous counsel of God, the ruthless murder of Abel, to the removal of Cain back in Genesis chapter 4. We'll be done soon. Back in Genesis 4, we should just start earlier, that's all. Genesis uh, chapter 4, you have the removal of Cain. Verse 9, Cain is confronted by the Lord. It says, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He's confronted by the Lord. And, and God gives him room to repent. Again, like I said, God doesn't ask questions for information. He's trying to draw Cain out. Cain, tell me. Tell me what happened. Where, where's Abel, your brother? And check out this bold response from Cain. And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Would somebody smack this guy down? I mean, seriously. Who are you to talk to the Lord like this? I don't know. Who do you thought? Why, why do you think I should know? Am I my brother's keeper? That's a wordplay here. You know, Abel was a keeper of the sheep. He says, what do you think I am? Am I his keeper? Does the keeper need a keeper? Being sarcastic. He's, he's, you know, my, my, my mom used to say, you're, you're, you're fresh. 
My mouth is too fresh. Not, tell me if I know. I mean, why should I know? Am I the keeper's keeper? Who do you think you are? What kind of response is this to the God who knows everything? This is a worse response than Adam and Eve. It's not an excuse. It's an outright lie. Lying in the presence of the truth. God points out his sin, verse 10. He says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And the blood would have been crying out for justice, vengeance. Avenge my blood, O Lord. Let not the enemy triumph. So God pronounces his judgment, verse 11. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you, but you will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. He pronounces the punishment. The ground that received the blood of his brother would no longer produce fruit for him. Not only was Cain banished from Eden, he was banished from the family as well. And instead of Cain receiving this as a just penalty, and a merciful penalty at that, he complains about it. (laughs) He complains about it. Verse 13, Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Are you kidding me? What, What do you deserve? Are you getting worse than you deserve? What do you really deserve? You really deserve death. That's what you deserve. And now your punishment is too great to bear? And look what he's afraid of. Look at verse 14. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Oh, really? Really? And now, now you're concerned about somebody? Now, now murder's a big problem for you? You know, it didn't seem like that a moment ago, but now murder's a problem, right? Now somebody might kill me. Instead of accepting the consequences, he wants more leniency. And that is the attitude of the sinner. Instead of accepting the punishment for what it is, like, can't you give me a break? Just, just give me more time. Give me more room. I, I mean, come on, give me another chance. I can do this again. Why, why are you being so hard on me? That is the attitude of the sinner. The attitude of those who are truly righteous and accept, they, they just accept the penalty. Those who are contrite, those who are humble, Lord, I deserve even far worse. I deserve far worse than what you've given me. Lord, you are so merciful. He cries for more leniency. God, you're being too hard on me. Whoever finds me might kill me. And the question was asked this morning. It's like, well, well, who's around to kill Cain? I mean, aren't there only two people here? (laughs) You actually have in uh, chapter 5 where we're told that Adam and Eve didn't only have Cain and Abel. There were many other sons and daughters. Maybe at this time there wasn't another son. Maybe there's just a bunch of girls, and these girls might be after him. Who knows? <laughs> the daughters aren't mentioned. Maybe there's a, there's a team of girls that say, Dad, just, just let me at them. <laughs> I'll, I'll take care of them. Maybe he's thinking about his parents. I mean, who knows? But here he is. He's fearful. Maybe he's thinking about the future. Whoever finds me in the future is going to remember that I'm the one who killed your brother. You know, we don't, we don't know how this, you know, necessarily plays out here, but, but we do know that the word of the Lord is true. Yeah, there's other people. We do know that there's other daughters. We do know that there's Adam and Eve. We do know that they're having more children. And chapter 5 talks about the other sons and daughters that aren't mentioned in Scripture. So he's worried about the rest of the, the family is going to come back 
for me. Lord, you can't let me go like this. And God, that's like hard to understand, right? God graciously grants even more mercy to Cain. Look at verse 15. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. What was, what was the sign appointed for Cain? We don't know. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe the Lord just made him so exceedingly ugly that nobody even wanted to come near him. Appointed him a sign like, I, you don't, I don't know what's going on with that guy, but don't go anywhere near him. I mean, who knows what it was? One commentator says, what if God gave him a guard dog or something? Who knows what the sign was appointed for Cain? We don't know. You know, there's no use speculating on what the sign was. But this mark was some visible sign that guaranteed him protection from God. But it was also a permanent reminder of his treachery for the rest of his life. Whenever anybody came near him, they would know automatically, this is a marked man. Anytime he looked in a pool of of water, he'd have this reflection of this mark on his life and what he had done to his brother. He was literally a marked man and reminded of the horror of his sin for the rest of his wretched life. And even the name of the land where he dwelt was called Nod. The word Nod means wandering. He dwelt in the land of of wandering. What what does that mean? The, The place where he settled even in the place where he settled, he continued to wander around in it. He, he never stayed put. Why? But because he, he had the opposite of the Midas touch. Whatever he touched dried up. What did the Lord say? The, the ground's not going to produce for you anymore, Cain. Like anything that you touch, there's no fruit coming from that. It's like it just shrivels up. Whatever, whatever I try to work on, every time I try to get some food, it's like, well, you know, I, I took from that tree yesterday and now it's dried up. I've got to go somewhere else now because like everything he touches just turns to brown. Like you're not going to be able to produce anything anymore. Like, like, like putting a seed in the ground for everybody else. It's like, hey, if it has enough sunlight and water and it's got the right kind of soil, like it'll come up eventually. Not so for Cain. Whatever was on the ground was all he was going to get because any seed that he put in the ground was not going to produce anything. So he has to keep going from place to place to place to place to place because there's no food coming for him. And his greatest problem wasn't that he was going to be a wanderer. That wasn't Cain's greatest problem. I mean, he thought that was his greatest problem, right? Oh, somebody finding me might kill me and I'm going to be a wanderer on the earth. That's not your greatest problem, Cain. Your greatest problem is not that a family member might find you and kill you, Luke 12, 5 says, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And Cain spent his life under the judgment of God and now spends eternity in hell. That was his greatest fear. Should have been his greatest fear because he was of the evil one. And he became the first of all those who reject God. The first unbeliever. Cain died separated from God. What a wasted and unfruitful life. The first unbeliever, the first false worshiper, the first persecutor of God's people, the first murderer, the first wanderer, and the first son of Satan. 
but he could not prevent the redemptive plan of God. And just real quick, 17 through 24 gives us the rejected line of Cain. But in verse 25, we're introduced to a new seed. <laughs> look, at, look at verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. This plan of God is going to continue. You know, you, you, we, we don't die, we multiply, right? It's like you put one out, another one springs up. You kill one righteous son, there's another righteous son coming behind. Yes, Abel was put to death, but God appointed another one. There's another offspring coming. This line will continue. Story to be continued, right? To be continued. Like this seed is going to triumph. And according to Luke chapter 3 and verse 38, there would come a deliverer from the line of Enosh, the line of Seth, the line of Adam. There would come a seed through that same line, traced all the way down to Jesus Christ. And the Bible lets us know that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What did, what did Abel's blood say? Vengeance, Lord! Justice! Don't let the enemy get away with this. Let not the enemy triumph. What does the blood of Jesus say? Mercy, Lord. Forgive them, Lord. They know not what they do. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hebrews 12, 24 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to be sprinkled and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried for vengeance, but the blood of Jesus cried for forgiveness and deliverance. He is the deliverer. He was the seed that was to come. He was the one that would crush the head of the serpent. He was the head crusher. The head crusher came through this line. And he will save you from your sins if you would only turn to him and trust in him. Don't, don't be like Cain. Don't, don't be so stubborn and hard-hearted in your sins. Heed the words of the Lord. Heed the words of Scripture. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and have life for eternity. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had together. We thank you for your word. Your word is so rich, so beautiful. Lord, just the way that all these pieces fit together, just to tell this wonderful story to us, the story of redemption and the story of the, the king of all kings, the one who orchestrates all things in his universe. And it will all fall and fulfill your appointed ends. So, Father, we're grateful for your word and that you, Lord, will reign forever and ever. And those of us who are part of the righteous seed, Lord, that we will reign forever with you. May you be glorified and honored. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.